BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In the science revolution this week, first, Trump is using the same logic on COVID-19 that he used for pesticides and pollution. And I'll explain why that's not a good thing. Neela Marion, Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator, is here. Can we stop mass extinctions? Eva Hamer, Legal Coordinator of Direct Action Everywhere, drops by on her article, Why I Went Topless at Costco, plus geeky science. This is what happens when public transit is free. But wait, there's more, so check it out. Donald Trump, first he started approving pesticides that the entire scientific community agreed are destructive to the nervous system of young children and can cause cancer. Then he dialed back on pollution rules from fossil fuel processors in ways that will increase cancer and lung disease in the United States. In both cases, Trump was able to ignore science in changing these rules because Republicans are saying that any science that uses public health data where the names of every single person included in the study have not been published should not be used. I mean, this is bizarre and anti-scientific, but this is what the Trump administration is doing. And now it appears that they want to use the same logic with the coronavirus, which is terrifying. These anti-science policies. Here's how it works. This was on Super Tuesday. The Environmental Protection Agency did a news dump. Rebecca Lieber tweeted this, an incredible news dump by EPA this evening. After delays, EPA just moved forward its most controversial proposal of the Trump administration, limiting science and medical data that can be used by the agency. This is under a policy that Scott Pruitt put into effect two years ago in 2018, officially called the Strengthen Transparency and Regulatory Science Guidelines. So here's how it works. We know, for example, from this nurses study of, you know, a couple hundred thousand nurses over the last 40 years that smoking causes lung cancer. Well, under this new policy of the Trump administration, this Republican policy, if the name of every nurse in that study is not published, then the information from that study cannot be used to make law or policy. So basically, all epidemiological studies, all the studies that we've done, oh, we've got a large population of people who are living downwind from one of the Koch brothers refineries, and they seem to be getting cancer. If you don't publish the names of every single person, and of course, they're always anonymous, this is medical information. If you don't publish the name of every single person, you may not use that information to make law or policy. This is blowing up science. And now they want to apply this to epidemiological information that has to do with the coronavirus so that Donald Trump can continue to say, oh, it's less than 1%. It's just the flu and just, you know, people go to work and they get better. Like he said on Sean Hannity, like he's lying through his teeth and denying on Twitter that he didn't say it. Jeff Tiedrich tweeting back, Lordy, there's tapes. Yes, there are. At the very moment we most need good science, we have an administration that is going after science with a meat axe. On the line with us is Nile Marian, Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator with Friends of the Earth International, F-O-E-I, as in Friends of 
earthinternational.org is their website. Nele's Twitter handle is N-E-L-E-M-A-R-I-E-N. Nele, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk about mass extinctions here. Mass extinctions not only weaken, frankly, the web of life, they also endanger humans. What is the state of mass extinction? We all saw Elizabeth Colbert's book a couple of years ago, you know, the sixth extinction, and, and it seems to be a consensus that we are in the, the sixth extinction. How fast is it moving? What is being done? And what can and should be done? We are in the mass extinction, and the previous one being the dinosaurs. So it's not an event that happens quick time around. Um, and normally, you know, biodiversity is something that keeps on moving, species appear and see species disappear. But we are currently losing species at a rate of thousands times quicker than would naturally occur. So that is all but normal. And of course, the reason for this happening is human activity. But of course, it's not just human activity. Basically, it's our economy, the corporations who are effectively constantly destroying biodiversity, the ecosystems, genetic diversity, all of these things are being destroyed at such a big rate that we actually are in the risk of a complete collapse about that. So what are the specific actions that big corporations are taking in the United States and around the world that are endangering biodiversity, that are, that are stripping the genetic diversity out of our food crops, and then in addition to that, you know, biodiversity more broadly out of our external ecosystems? You already mentioned agriculture is one of the big ones, and for many reasons. One of them is deforestation and just changing all kinds of valuable ecosystems into monocrop land, which is hugely devastating, of course, for these for this previously valuable ecosystems. Um, the other thing, and you also already mentioned in your question, is that um, normally even agriculture has a lot of biodiversity in it. Farmers used to have for thousands of years so many different plants, etc., and they used to interact with the insects and the birds and, and what. Everything, all the, the biodiversity would be on the cropland as well. But nowadays we're having monoculture crop plantations, um, furthermore heavily sprayed by pesticides, which will not leave any other kind of diversity living on a cropland. So that effectively also kills biodiversity, not only on the cropland itself, but of course it has an impact further ahead of where the cropland are. Agriculture, especially industrial agriculture, is one of the main culprits of biodiversity loss. Um, and, well, as Friends of the Earth, we always state that agroecology will really be an answer because, as I mentioned before, when you do ag agriculture in a way which really is taking into account all the different types of products and all the different varieties of, of agriculture that can be done, you can actually enhance biodiversity and it's also good for the climate. So that is, that's one of the first one, agriculture, but of course all different kinds of sectors come to mind as well. For example, if you have mining, and especially if we're talking about the big kinds of mining, the mountaintop removal that is effectively destroying a whole ecosystem at a time. 
Um, we can talk about fossil fuel extractions. We can talk about infrastructure. The amount of infrastructure which is being planned for the next 10, 20, 30 years is actually so big that that in itself can destroy the biodiversity and the ecosystems of the world. We're talking with Anila Marian, who is the Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator for the Friends of Earth International, foei.org is the website. What can individual persons do? I know as a consumer, my wife Louise and I, for I'd say probably all of our married life, we were vegetarians when we met back in the 60s. We've always tried to eat organic food. One of the things that I've noticed when we go into food co-ops, organic food stores, or farmers markets where there's a lot of organic food is that there's a, an extraordinary diversity, lots of different kinds of you know, breeds of tomatoes and, and pears and apples and, and uh, peppers and I mean, you know, fill in the blanks. Whereas when you go to the supermarket and you're just looking at those food categories, you typically only see one or two species, those that are easily grown with lots of pesticides and, and, and in crappy soil and those that will you know, preserve well while they're shipped from one state to another. It seems obvious that trying to buy organic food and buy locally is something that helps biodiversity at the agriculture level. Are there other things that individual consumers can do to help promote biodiversity? And what are the political levers? Where are the pressure points where we can encourage our politicians to do things that will stop harming biodiversity and start promoting biodiversity? At the personal level, as a consumer, what you have been stating, it's completely right and it relates back to what I was saying about the agricultural biodiversity. You are right, there's just so many different kinds of species of tomatoes and pears, etc. And consuming these means that we also strengthen the farmers, the family farmers, the small-scale farmers who use biological, organic ways of farming. And this is really enhancing biodiversity. So that is completely correct. And then, of course, consuming local products is always correct. So very fair and very good what you're doing there. And I would advise people to do that. At the consumer level only, we will not be able to change the system. We need to change the economic types of systems. And we need to change the powers which are behind this in order to be able to, to save biodiversity. And if it has to depend on individual consumers only, who quite often are not given the choice also. If everybody would decide tomorrow after hearing this interview, like, oh, I'll go to the shop and I'll buy only organic, then there is not sufficient organic food. So we have a systemic problem here. So therefore, we need systemic answers. And these systemic answers, they need to come from policymakers. So what we need to do is really make sure that these corporate actors who are causing, be it in the industrial agriculture sector and who are land grabbing, making huge scale agriculture, selling it on wholesale markets across the world with lots of speculation and with, with also high prices in supermarkets, making it inaccessible for people. These kind of things have to change and we have to make sure that we get policies that actually get us back to local community where people know each other and where we can have trade just at a local level so that people can help each other. The same goes for other kind of corporate I mean, 
Of course, we will need a certain amount of resources, but the amount of extraction of resources we're seeing currently in the world is completely unsustainable. And honestly speaking, most of it is for crap we actually don't need. We can be so much happier if we live together in smaller communities. And I mean, that doesn't mean we can't ever travel or something. And it doesn't mean we have to go back to, to the cave times. Not at all. But just taking away the power of these corporations who are actually extracting and trading us stuff that we don't need, making having programmed obsolescence, by which I mean that they actually make products in such a way that they get destroyed very quickly so we are forced to buy something new. These kind of things they need to change through policies that actually force business to do the right thing. And that means political action. That means getting politically involved. I would add just finally, uh, you know, my understanding is that if you eat a diverse spectrum of species in your food, you also get a diverse spectrum of micronutrients, of, you know, that it's a very healthy thing. And Nelly Marion, the Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator with Friends of the Earth International, thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And that's foei.org is the website. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think it's the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD Oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafNaturals.com. On the line with us is Eva Hamer. She is the legal coordinator with Direct Action Everywhere, the website directactioneverywhere.com. Eva, welcome to the program. I saw an article over at Common Dreams that, that you wrote titled, Why I Protested Costco Topless. And, of course, a provocative headline, but there was so much more to this article. It was really quite extraordinary. Welcome to the program. And you want to tell us about this? Yeah, the article that you wrote was detailing one of the protests that I did with Direct Action Everywhere pretty recently after a federal case came down, handed to us by the corporation Costco. Costco has has gotten a little bit fed up with our protests over the years, which are in association with some investigations that we've done of their farms. Mm. Specifically, um, we've gone inside of of, uh, pig farms and egg farms that have supplied Costco and taken that message straight to Costco's customers to tell them what we found. There are some conditions in, in Costco's farms now. They've committed to going to station crate free to be treating animals well, to give them five freedoms mm-hmm. of, of animal welfare. And we found really just the opposite conditions in these farms. And we've been doing these protests to tell the world in response rather than, you know, thanking us or changing conditions in their farms. They've just handed us a lawsuit in federal court. Whoa. As a result of this particular protest or as a result of previous action? I mean, is that what is the lawsuit what provoked this protest? Yes, the lawsuit has provoked the protest. And so we bonded by doing a, another protest. You know, it's yeah. important to us 
And you and a number of other women were not just topless, but basically you had painted the naked top half of your body with paint and lipstick so that you looked scarred up and bloody like these animals were being presented to the slaughterhouse, the way that the animals were treated. Do I have that right? I mean, that was, that's, that was the gist of what I got from the article and the photos I saw. Right. And that's kind of one of the most graphic things that we see in pig farms is that pigs are, are bred to give more babies than they have nipples. And any nursing mother, I'm sure, knows that, you know, it can get really raw. And over the course of multiple pregnancies with very little break in between, it's so common to see raw and bloodied nipples on these mother pigs who aren't wow. able to move around, who aren't able to even, you know, protect their babies, often crush their babies to death because they can't move to avoid that. And babies are nursing on these raw and bloodied nipples and often have to drink blood to survive. So that's really what wow. we were we were kind of showing on our own bodies in this topless protest right. where and you can see um, bloodied nipples. Yeah, uh, and, and, and good on you. DirectActionEverywhere.com. Tell us about your organization. We're a grassroots network of, of animal rights activists. And for about five years now, we've been really spreading this, this message that it's not food, it's violence. That so much of what we think of as really pedestrian and normal and, and convenient and nice um, food options that are, are made out of animals are really rooted in violence. And we really want to expose that and kind of draw that cognitive dissonance out of people because we know that so many of us were raised so normal in so many of our minds, and we really want to get that conversation on the table about how, how animals are being treated and who animals are and how animals are, you know, individuals with rich emotional lives just like any of us who really want to live. Yes. I'm encouraged by things like, you know, Burger King having the impossible Whopper now. Uh, apparently it's selling well. This is a plant-based burger instead of animal-based are you seeing more and more of that sort of thing of people, the meatless Monday thing catching on? I mean, a lot of this is being driven actually by the climate change folks who are saying that uh, animal agriculture is one of the major contributors to climate change, producing methane and, and also, you know, enormous amounts of, of what could be forest land being converted into cropland just to produce vegetables to feed to animals, you know, plant matter to feed to animals that we will ultimately eat. And, and if we just took the animals out of that equation and simply ate the plant matter, we'd be healthier, the planet would be healthier, there'd be less CO2 emissions. Is it your sense from the work that you're doing and the direct action that you're doing that you're getting results and that things are moving in a positive direction? Absolutely. When I see kind of more plant-based options out there, when I see climate change activists talking about the real damage that animal agriculture does, I definitely feel hopeful and feel like folks are moving the direction that they're thinking is going in. And I also see the exact opposite out there. Like, for example, the very most liberal presidential candidate that we have here on the Democratic Party is Bernie Sanders supports the dairy industry so extensively through supporting the Farm Bill every single year, which provides millions and millions of dollars of subsidies to animal agriculture. Right. And it's a big deal in the, in the, the state of Vermont. That's the choice I mean, we have. Yeah, I get that. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it, it, you know, it is a big deal in Vermont. and But yeah, it, it is problematic all the way around. Eva Hamer, the website is directactionEverywhere.com. Eva, I wish you the very best in everything you're doing and keep it up. Thank you so much. So what happens when public transit goes free? We had free public transit here in Portland for a while. We don't anymore. The city council is considering uh, returning it. Turns out that actually it's a good investment for a city to make. 
it's not an expense, it's an investment because you end up with fewer cars on the road. So you have less congestion, you have less air pollution, you have less wear and tear on the highways, things like that. If you want to argue that mobility is a human right, and, and in many countries it is considered a human right, then providing free public transportation is a way to do it. It's a powerful tool against climate change, particularly if, as we see more and more of these buses running on electricity and, of course, trams and trains and things like that running on electricity rather than running on even natural gas, some of them, that's supposed to be the cleanest. Certainly, let's get away from diesel and gasoline. These are all good things, and it's spreading. Worcester, Mass., is experimenting with this, they, and they tried free bus service, just the buses, and they saw ridership go up 20%. In December, city council members in Kansas City, Missouri, passed a resolution, by the way, from a Huffington Post story. In December, city council members in Kansas City, Missouri, passed a resolution that could make 490,000 people have access to a free bus fare. Mayor Quentin Lucas says he hopes the scheme which is going to cost the city about $8 million, will, quote, build up a culture of bus riding. Olympia, Washington, went zero fare back in January. Across the Atlantic, it's going to be free in Luxembourg starting in March. It's already free in dozens of cities in France and Poland. Tallinn, the capital city of Estonia and their largest city, they've offered free transit, free buses since 2013. And in 2018, that country offered free bus service between cities in Estonia. The impact in all of these places is very measurable, is very positive. Free public transit and why we don't pay to ride elevators. You know, this is, this is like, who's opposing this? The short answer, he says, is politics. Unfortunately, rich people tend to have more political power. Right. And, you know, they want to sell you cars and things. So there we go. Free public transit, a good thing and a good thing to do. In our Science Fact of the Week, there's a new study published in cardiovascular research that claims air pollution shortens lives by an average of 2.9 years and causes 8.8 .8 million early deaths every year. Yikes! We need alternatives to dirty energy quickly. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.